You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. And this is Seba Hassan. I just wanted to talk a little bit about our week and how we're going to do this. And, um, you know, I I think Osma's right now in, are you in Portland? You're like traveling all over the world crazy. Yes. Like, what are you up to? I don't know. For somebody who's as scared of COVID as I am, I'm not really sure why I'm traveling so much. But yeah, I went to Portland a couple of weeks ago. And to fill people in, this was after our Nashville trip. Because remember, right after Nashville, I like tripped over the open suitcase, broke broke two toes and dislocated one. Um, So obviously the next week I had to go to Portland and we were supposedly hiking my girlfriend and I, so I'm wearing the ugly hiking sandals, but everybody wants to go to the waterfalls in Portland. Okay. So I was like, I want a photo shoot up at the top by the waterfall. So I'm going to wear a pretty dress. Oh my goodness. Yeah. With so your I'm, like um, old people shoes? With my old people shoes, I wore okay. a really pretty gown and I hiked up the mountains to the waterfalls. And then guess what? The bridge is like three feet across. So, oh and there's like a hundred people on it. So you can't really take pictures and everybody's staring at me because they're all in proper hiking gear. And like my shoes are all wrong because they're open-toed like hiking sandals. <laughs> and then I'm wearing this weird dress. I'm just like, all kinds of juxtapositions going on and people were so, so confused about it, but you know, it was what it was. I still had fun. Uh, especially when I got out of the dress, it was a lot. Oh better. my gosh. So I can't wait to see the, I can't wait to see the pictures, um, of, of that because I do know you were making fun of me for unpacking. Like I always unpack the same day I come in, no matter what happens, I like to put everything away. I have my packing cubes and she was making fun of me. She's like, not me. Oh, I think Rubina was making oh, fun Rubina of me. Rubina was making fun of me. I'm, I'm an like, unpacker what? too. You're an unpacker too. Immediately. Except the one day you did, she didn't. Guess what happened, everybody? She broke her oh, toe. So that is unpacking suitcases. Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, yeah, she does not do that. And she broke her toes. So lesson learned to everybody. Please. <laughs> unpack and put your stuff away but um how's so how's your week going otherwise your toe is okay and it's kind of in- it's healing it's not swollen okay. anymore so that's good yeah the law Osma's going to take us a little bit through our soapbox and quite frankly we have a lot to unpack here and i'd love to get um our guest take on it once she finishes her soapbox because let me tell you it's There's been some a points very, on here. Busy, busy week yeah. for the u.s well a busy probably year, you know, it's things that we did not really realize were happening or didn't stay on top of. So we have a lot going on. I get it. There's school, there's COVID, there's work, there's life. Um, And uh, I think with people coming to us, especially when we're visibly Muslim asking us about what's going on in Afghanistan or what do you think about it? I mean, yesterday, my contractor started talking to me about it and he's on the wrong side. (laughs) obviously. Um, So it was like, please, please don't make me fire you. Please don't make me fire you. Just stop talking. So I wanted to give us some bullet points in case you needed some help. And obviously referring you to her Anissa Fayyad of Sister Act on that podcast, because she's actually an Afghan. So if you want to get her take on it, there's some videos that she's got up on her socials. um, If you want to check those out, but I kind of boiled this down to like some bullet points to help you. In February, 2020, there was a Doha agreement 
government where the last POTUS, remember how much we liked him, not Joe Biden, the guy before him, shook hands with the Taliban and decided that we would pull out all American troops out of Afghanistan by May of 2021. You know, and then, of course, we know after February is when the lockdown happened and we ended up in a pandemic. So um, basically, I guess what he thought was, okay, the Taliban is going to be fine. They're agreeing to let us go and the Afghan forces will have control. They will maintain control um, and be okay. However, you know, these Afghan forces, as soon as that happened, apparently the sentiment is from Afghan sources on the ground, from their like military heads, is that the Afghan forces kind of lost their morale because now American money is coming out um, as the troops were slowly being removed. Um, and so there was a lot of corruption, a lot of bribes. And the Taliban just basically negotiated and took a lot of the, you know, like rural outposts and slowly was rolling in and their goal was to get to Kabul. Um, then beginning of August, we start hearing, oh, there's this like debacle of pulling out. Um, Taliban was getting closer to Kabul. So President, what's his name? Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan decides to leave, flee the country. And you know, when the president leaves the country, there's always going to be trouble, right? So yeah, of course, Taliban is going to come in and take over Kabul. Um, it's been happening over a year though. So I'm not really sure exactly why America is all up in arms. This is like, ooh, it's so newsworthy that the Taliban took over. No, they've been rolling in and we gave them the green light to do it. Remember, our last president did that. Um, and now they are calling themselves the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Um, there were originally 300,000 Afghan forces um, to 100,000 Taliban. And so as Muslims, we know what a three to one ratio means in war. Um, so if you know, you know, uh, the Taliban easily overtook three times its strength. Uh, you, we know that U.S. citizens and people with special immigrant visas, people who are Afghans who are working with the United States, were granted evacuation. Um, I think they said 123,000 people have been removed, but the numbers of who's remaining is anywhere from 100 to 600 uh, U.S. citizens supposedly left in Afghanistan. And I read somewhere yesterday, uh, a U.S. official was saying, I think it was the Secretary of State, Blinken was saying that, oh, those people didn't want to come home. I know in five, 10 years, we're going to find out otherwise, but I think that that's really interesting. So um, the fear, the reason why there's such a mass evacuation is that anybody who colluded with Western forces is going to potentially be looked at as an enemy and be tortured or worse. And then, of course, people who don't want to um, follow the Taliban rules of the veiling or the burqa, they're not going to want to stay there if they're, I think they're already closing down girls' schools. So um, there's all of that happening. Our military fears that the Taliban will give cover to Al-Qaeda or other terrorist cells. But last February, that's what the Doha agreement was. They agreed not to do that anymore. Um, but I think what they want, the military complex in the United States wants to stay over there to keep the kids in order because they can't rule themselves. So you can see where that's like imperialist colonial thinking. Um, and that is what I think bothers us. I'm not really sure what Afghans feel about that. So I'm going to let them speak to it. Um, John Marshall, who is a writer, um, says that after 20 years, it was up to the Afghans to decide their own future. This is a fight for Afghans, not another generation of American boys. A perpetual deployment was not in the security interests of the United States. So, you know, as Muslims, we have basically laughed this whole time at Westerners who thought they could ever convince Afghans that um, they were helping them because we killed, the numbers say 150,000 Afghans 
um, in this 20-year war to like our 3,000 troops, right? But the numbers are probably higher. We know they're higher. Um, we didn't orchestrate um, targeted attacks all the time. Sometimes we indiscriminately also killed collateral damage. So people on the ground don't like us, you know, and they're really happy that we're leaving. I know there's the contingency of 123,000 who left, but I'm saying overall Afghan forces on the ground or Afghan, the public doesn't love um, the West right now. Um, We're also laughing at the imperialism. Like it takes white people from the West to control the brown people in this, you know, cowboy country. Um, No, it doesn't. They have their own set of rules and their own tribal agreements and understandings. Let them figure it out. And if they can't, they'll implode. That's okay. Let let it happen. We we come in when there's genocide happening. Um, And I'm, I hate to say, wait until genocide happens to intervene, but, you know, we watch the Srebrenica massacre happen. We watch what happens in Palestine all the time. We don't get involved over there. Why is Afghanistan so special? You know, and in the end, Osama bin Laden wasn't found in Afghanistan. He was found next door in Pakistan. And we never bombed the crap out of Pakistan because they're a nuclear power, right? So our everybody who's saying right now, oh, the girls, the girls in Afghanistan, if you cared about the girls in, in Afghanistan, we would not have indiscriminately bombed their country and created a lot of widows, created a lot of these girl orphans and created all of these problems because now all those people have to be rescued and brought to all these different countries and resettle without language, without education, without cultural um, uh, knowledge to start from scratch without a head of household. So it's just really, really annoying. The other thing that we can do as moms is welcome refugees because, I mean, we created this problem. We wouldn't have a refugee and immigration problem if we didn't create the problem in the first place, but our government did what they did. So our soapbox is... Um, know the bullet points, get involved with the refugee crisis, shake your head and defer people to an actual Afghan when they ask you, what do you think about the problem in Afghan, uh, Afghanistan? I do think it's important to say that we knew that this was coming. Everybody who says it's it's so surprising, like you obviously don't know um, that the different parts of the Muslim world are that, that they're different um, and you grossly underestimated because they like sweep. And they kind of decide stereotypically blanket, all Muslims are the same way. Afghans are a special breed and they didn't see it coming. We all did. We're not surprised at all. That's our soapbox for today. That's a lot to unpack. So I'm going to leave it to the experts to continue unpacking that because I'm still in the process of learning it. Um, Like you said, there's a lot of information coming out, some fake news, some not so fake news. And it's a good thing that we have somebody here today to help us with that because we're wrapping up our Muslims in the News series this month and hope that our guests have demonstrated how important it is to ask the right questions and ask the right people these questions and make sure the newsroom or desk is as diverse as its stories. And we have somebody here today that, is doing just that. Um, we are going to rep- uh, we are going to introduce Noor Tagori. Noor is an award-winning journalist and producer of stories. We ha- were able to hear it firsthand. She um, is a documentarian and she has a podcast series herself called Sold in America, Inside Our Nation's Sex Trade, and it received a 2019 Graces Award for Best Investigative Series. And I have to say, I started listening to it after I saw her speak at the, and it's just a a totally eye-opening experience. So I highly recommend it for people. She spent a decade talking about identity representation in media, breaking barriers, through storytelling. She's also a a businesswoman, and we got to give her props for that. She is a 
boss who launched her own consulting and production company at Your Service that works with partners to tell representative stories. And we recently had the good fortune to meet her and hear her. Literally, we were crying in our seats because she knows how to tell a story. So hopefully we're not going to be crying today because I already cannot see. So welcome, Noor. And I really, really appreciate you being here. Welcome, Noor. Alec Noor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Zayva. Thank you, Uzma, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. That's awesome. So we usually kick it off um, by asking people, especially if they don't have kids, tell us about your mom and how your mom informs your work. I love this part because kids who talk about their moms, they're like gushing and some of them get really teary at the end. Oh, I love that. And I wish that for so many people. I I know it's not, it is such a privilege to have a decent relationship with your mom. Like that I've learned as I've gotten older that um, it is not as common. And that doesn't mean that I haven't had riffs with my mom. Um, and I'm also so just incredibly grateful. I mean, like my early, my earliest memories with my mom is like her dressing me up in her clothes and her jewelry and her make, like she used to always say that she, she would just like play doll with me. Cause we were, it's just us two. I'm, I'm her first kid. And she had me when she was 21 or 22, which is super 22, I think she's, which is so young. And, um, and she's just like my, just literally my hero. I mean, I grew up in a very conservative white town in rural Maryland, and I felt a lot of shame around my identity. And I think that that's like a huge part of like some of the sadness that I have about my relationship with my mom is that I felt shame around her because she wore the hijab when I was growing up and I was so embarrassed by that. Um, but she didn't I, like, even now when she hears me say that she's like, I didn't realize it was that bad, but like, of course, like I totally understand. And she did so like, she was always just so involved and so supportive. I mean, we had, I have like a Lisa Frank journal that she used to like, and through high school, she would still pack my lunch and write notes. And we would like write to each other in this journal. And I like FaceTime her. I mean, the last couple of weeks I've spent in our cabin unplugged, like not on my phone at all and just writing and just being, and I haven't talked to her as much. And it's so odd. Like I maybe talk to her every other day, (laughs) but I like FaceTime my mom like six times a day. It's kind of ridiculous. And it's amazing. I love her. And, um, it, it was so great when I like got to start traveling the world because I started being able to take her with me everywhere. And we have done so much together and she is really, she's always been my number one. It's so funny. Me and Adam were joking about it this morning. I was like, thanks for being my number one fan. And he was like, that's your mom. I'm your number two. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, the obviously. So I'm her number one fan too. I mean, I actually might not be anymore. My little sister, Lena is very obsessed with my mom. Like, she takes these like creep photos of her and is always like stalking her. It's so funny. She like sends us just Snapchats of my mom just existing and my mom hates it, but we love it. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I just, she's, she is literally the best. I'm excited for her to listen to this podcast. Yeah. Especially if she's your number one fan, it sounds like she's going to be listening to it. That's awesome. So, um, tell us, so you started with your mom. Tell us a little bit about your family background. Cause I actually didn't know that you grew up in rural Maryland. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I grew up, so I was born in West Virginia, lived there for eight days, moved to Alabama for a few years. And then I grew up in Southern Maryland until I, we moved out of there when I was, um, almost turning 15, 14, 15. And then we moved right outside of DC and I am the oldest of five kids. We're a really big family and loud and everybody has a very specific personality and somehow we are all still of each other. And it's just so much fun. Like everyone does something completely different or loves completely different things. So it's just really interesting. So uh, I'm being from uh, the DC area as well, or at least now I am, I, I still consider myself from Chicago. Let me just tell you. So it's really hard that, for me to say that I've been living here for 18 years, but um, for you, you know, you you talk a lot about media representation, right? And and I, this is the first time I'm hearing that you were embarrassed or, or maybe embarrassed is not the right word of your mom because, you know, it's not, you're not oh, no, representative. That is the right word. Yeah. Cause it's, it's something that is not known. I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily embarrassed by my parents, but I didn't realize that having two different colored parents, right? Like biracial as I'm biracial was a thing until other people started pointing it out to me. Then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, I'm not normal. So I totally hear what you're saying where that's well, concerned. That's a great point that you mentioned that because now that I think about it, I was actually just writing about this. I don't think that the embarrassment really started until this kid in my class was really like made a funny face and said, why does your mom wear that thing? That on Exactly. And you don't know it until you see other people looking at it from their perspective, then all of yeah. a sudden you're like, huh, maybe well, that is that, not. And normal. then it was of course, nine 11. Like I was in yes. grade. So I was, so seven. you're still, you're, you were a baby during that yeah. time. So that's, so that's yeah. like my whole life is post nine 11. Like it's it, that, that is the world that I lived in. And I also always knew I wanted to be on television. Like from when I was a child, I literally like from maybe like three years old, I was like, this is all I want to do is ask people questions. I didn't even know what the name for that was until I was like 12. The actually the investigative project that I am going to be announcing next week is rooted in that story of identity. And like, I kept asking, I was just kept thinking to myself, like, why did I feel so much shame around who I was? And then I realized, oh, it's the industry I work in. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is literally the storytelling industry that told me stories as a child that I internalized that said, you could only be on TV if you look like this. Your exactly. story is only worthy if it comes from this angle. Like that's something I've really been unpacking until now. Like even after all the work that I've done, Oftentimes the interviews that I do or the meet, like the questions that I get asked by bigger outlets, it's, it's still deficit framing. It's still yes. done through, through this like victim story to lens. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course, like I've gone through hardship, like everybody else has in their entire lives. And also I'm not defined by that. Like I've also produced a lot of work. I've done a lot of research. I've, we've conducted investigations that have literally changed certain policies or conversations in communities. So, um, so it's very interesting to see that like in, even in myself, I've internalized that victim narrative and now I'm unpacking, like you can also reframe that. You can also like, this, this is a big healing point in just experiencing sexual assault. Like I can go back into those traumatic memories 
and reframe things. And that's really hard. And if you're somebody who's struggling with any type of trauma, like I would recommend EMDR therapy. There's also yes, a really great book. Ma'am. Yeah. Oh, great. You know, I is. do, I do. EM, I <laughs> had done EMDR therapy before anybody knew what it was. I'm like, you don't understand. Yeah. I didn't know. I was the only one who I knew life. was doing that. Yeah. Until, until, um, we figured it out. Like I started talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did EMDR while I was doing sold in America. Cause I was like, why oh. is this series so triggering to me? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Like there are these situations that you went through that were not as consensual as you thought. Yes. And so it's, which is very interesting. I mean, I'm also still unpacking that too, is like, if you went through traumatic experience, experiences as a kid that you didn't see as traumatic at that time. Like right. you have to carry that trauma or can you just be like, I super passed it. Like I don't need to make myself a victim again, but we're it's tapping into victim consciousness is so a part of our culture. And it's so easy to do, especially I will say within like the Muslim community, I, I cause I've been writing a lot and I'm realizing that even as I'm talking about misrepresentation, I, we had like Adobe television in my household and we, I think we had more Adobe channels than we had English channels. <laughs> like my dad was always watching Al Jazeera and every news story I ever saw growing up that had anything to do with Muslims was still around war yes. and just devastation, just always tragedy and devastation. And there was no like, the trauma porn was on another level. Mm-hmm. We were like, I don't even, I don't even know if we could ever really be desensitized from every, I mean, eventually you have to get desensitized from all that, but I never, as an empath, I never got desensitized from all that I was seeing, but it definitely, like it didn't, it also just wasn't entirely right. I think like the stories that the way that we tell them, but that's just like how we tell stories. Like we're just, we know that when the television is on and we're looking at news and that's why, like what you were saying is my, like everything that's happening in Afghanistan right now is not a surprise to any of us ever Mm -hmm. at all. Like we all knew this was going to happen from the beginning and to see like the world react the way it's, it's, it's like deeply sad and I have had like so many just moments of breaking down while this story has been unfolding because it's almost like we knew it, but we didn't, but like maybe a part of us was like, but maybe not, like maybe it won't, maybe we'll never live to see that happen. And then when you do see that happen, you're just like, it's just like the anger becomes this deep sadness of look at what we've done. And a huge part of that is because of how we have told stories to justify the moves that we make in countries other than our own. And I, so I see that. So I'm starting to see that now in both lenses of my identity. So growing up and watching American news and television and wanting to be a part of that group of storytellers and wanting to change how I looked and changed how I sounded and changed how I dressed in order to be like those storytellers. Because to me as a kid, I'm like, I hated the hijab because I thought, well, it's not on TV unless it has the word terrorist next to it. Mm -hmm. Or it's like an older woman crying because 
her child got killed. Like that's what I that I like and I see that woman in my head. Like I see that image in my head of seeing that on television and feeling so scared. And that was like on the Arabic news television because that's what we saw of the rest of the world, which by the way wasn't just like the Muslim world. It was just, we were all like those news channels were always covering tragedy just everywhere else. And I now that I say that out loud, I'm like, wow, we were so like before social media, we were so, Americans were so blind to what would happen in the rest mm-hmm. of the world. But when you're when you hold like a bicultural identity, you're so in tune with with what's happening at home, like at home in the motherland, even if you weren't born there. And because of that, it's always in relation to other things that are happening in the world. And so you have some type of understanding. And even then, it's like not it's not always. I was just talking to this woman who is an actress who plays the role of a hijab wearing woman on a TV show and on an American uh, network television show. And she was sharing with me how she's not Muslim. She's, she's Arab um, and not Muslim. And she was sharing with me how like her dad, who was, who was Arab, like, told her that she should change her last name and didn't want her to learn Arabic, but wanted her to learn French and like Mm. was so discouraging of his own identity so that she could make it or so that there was just like this pride point. And I have seen that several times, especially with countries that France colonized. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I see it with every country obviously, but specifically like the French colonized countries where this idea of like being Arab or knowing Arabi is like less than. And I didn't grow up, like my parents tried to shove Arabi down my throat. Like even when I was living in rural Maryland, they paid for a teacher to come out and drive to see us. We did Sunday school. And my biggest regret in my life is like not taking that seriously. That is like, if somebody would be like, what do you regret? I'd be like that. Because I remember this one time I was in gymnastics and I was getting ready for my class and I was doing my audio homework and then I hit it when my teacher came mm-hmm. and my mom was so frustrated with me. And she literally said to the teacher, she's doing her Arabic homework. And my teacher looked at me like as if she had never, I, literally, she may have never met somebody who knew two languages. And she was like, <laughs> you know, another language, like as if like, she was like, you are, I don't know, you have magical powers. Like that's how <laughs> she was. And it was the only time in my, in that, in, during that time when I was in that area where I, I was like, is that a good thing? Like, I didn't know. I thought, <sighs> I just thought, and so it's like, you have all of this like internalized colonization, white supremacy, all of it. And you don't even know how to unpack that when you are perfecting the two identities. Like every first gen Muslim kid who has parents who are quote strict unquote (laughs) knows what it's like to be two people. You know what it's like to be like the version of you at school and Mm -hmm. and then the version of you at home. And you learn those things from television. Like you learn how to be at school from television and then every, every, and then you learn how to be at home around your family and then still watch television. And when you see that you're like people who look like your family are represented a type of way, it's almost like you, I don't know if I would say I internalized hate. I mean, maybe to an extent I would have to unpack that more. I definitely internalized confusion because I was, I just kept thinking to myself, 
where are they getting all, especially when I remember when like Hillary Clinton made that comment about Muslims being Muslim Americans being like the eyes and the ears on the ground mm-hmm. for and I was like, what? I don't know anyone. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, I what don't am know I any of these people? Like I'm, I'm so confused. And is this happening? Like, so there was just always this confusion and, um, my family's like very socially active and my like extended family and um, they're very community involved. And so I, I, it was just a lot to kind of take in and, and I had to figure out, okay, well, who are you? Like what parts of you are you? Because that is how you identify and who, what you adopt and what parts of it are things that are learned behaviors that you question now. And you're like, huh, I don't know if I really agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that. This is what I, so that's kind of the process that I'm in right now. And I realized that a huge part of that trauma is, um, is really like peeling back the layers of how I saw myself and my people represented on television, film, in the news. And now asking the question finally, like, why were those stories told? Like who benefited from those stories being told? And we're seeing that now, like we're seeing that 20, well, we've been seeing it. It's been fatal to our community. We, people have gotten killed over this Mm -hmm. and now we're finally understanding, oh, the reason that we have however many movies that glorify war and that glorify, um, the American war in Afghanistan is because we needed to justify our actions. Yeah. And asking ourselves questions like, well, what came first? Like, did our opinion about the war come first or did the film come first? Like what part? (laughs) So there are so many layers to this that we are, we are working on uncovering. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about that in the last eight weeks with our um, Muslims in entertainment and now Muslims in news. Was it the picture or the policy or the policy or the picture? That came Mm -hmm. first, you know, and so you're right. It is the greatest chicken and the egg story. But I feel like because um, the research that's been done so far in entertainment, at least, it's like 100 years old. It goes back 100 years and like a thousand different. um, There's that one. I forgot the name of the gentleman. I think we mentioned it on one of our podcasts who looked at like a thousand depictions of Muslims in entertainment. And every single one was like the same trope and it was the same like violent terrorist, Mm -hmm. like, or the exotic oppressed woman who is also like super sexualized. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. all of those things. So you've talked about a lot of things. I kind of wanted to take it back to, um, you know, how you, how you reconciled um, your, I don't want to call it an identity crisis because I don't think we ever had the crisis. It was so prolonged our whole lives. Like I didn't oh, know who or what I right. was. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought it's about that. It's not like a one, like a crisis is one and done. I, right. This I is say like- it's a series of crises. Like that's how yeah. I've always said. I'm like, I, I literally wrote this the other day. I'm like, if you're a first gen kid, you have at least one identity crisis. In oh life. yeah. Yeah. At least. Yeah. And I tell well, people that I didn't know what I was until I was 35. So <laughs> yeah. You know, I really didn't because it was that confusing. Because like you said, you're one thing at home and then you're one thing outside. Um, so, yeah, and, and how many things does that impact? Like my mm-hmm. friend Min Hall, she wrote and directed the film Hela, which was Apple TV's first mm-hmm. uh, movie that they bought. It's a coming of age story about a young Muslim American woman. And we, I was just literally on FaceTime with her last week and we were talking about control 
And we were talking about our work and just like how it, especially in working in film, like you want to make sure that you have a lot of control over things, but you, you never do because there's so many factors involved. Mm -hmm. And then we were jokingly talking about like, where did the need for control in our lives come from? And then I, I laughed and we both like real, it was this like realization. I was like, oh, the need, like this need for control came from when we were controlling our identities. Like it came from controlling who we were and how we presented ourselves because we wanted to make sure that we were safe and okay in the situations that we were in. And that changes who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think for us, because we're a whole generation older than you are, um, for us, I think the control, because both of us are very controlling Zeba and myself. We're also firstborn, so we get you. Um, so there is some like, birth speak order. for yourself. No. Other than I am, I'm, she's 100% right. But yeah, anyway. Totally right. <laughs> um, so I think for us, it was because the truth was so outside of our control for so long. Because like yeah. you, we grew up knowing what was happening back in the motherland. Mm-hmm. We heard a whole different side of the story. And we had... We had nothing. We were armed with zero because when we were growing up, I mean, you think you had a few channels when you were, we had three. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, wait, we actually did we have the Cartoon Network? TV with a knob. That's yeah, we had knobs on our TVs. So you really <laughs> couldn't control the truth. And while there was Islamophobia at that time, a lot of it truly was without an agenda. It was literally like out of ignorance. And the bad guy that time was somebody else. We were the good guys. The Afghans were the good guys. Muslims mm-hmm. were the good guys. Um, we were just super exotic. And then of course, 9-11 happened and everything changed. So yeah, that's so it's, it's, fa- it's always fascinating to hear that because I just, I don't know that. You don't reality. know anything else. Yeah. yeah. Literally exactly. don't know that reality at all. But I, I do know that when my great uncle came to America and moved to Oklahoma and owned a gas station, he would board the plane and a cowboy hat and a gun in his holster. Yeah. And be fine. And I just remember, I remember when he told me that and he was basically talking about how TSA is a scam. <laughs> I agree. Basically, mostly um, I'll investigate that for you. TSA y'all. was not a thing when we were growing up. Well, of course, but like the fact that he, like this Brown, Mm-hmm. guy and a cowboy hat and a gun was able to get on the plane from Oklahoma, Libyan. Like, it's just, it's so remarkable to think that that was a world that people lived in at some point. And the feeling of the truth being out of control, like now that I hear you say it that way too, it makes me realize that we also grew up. Oh my God. We also just grew up doubting everything we mm-hmm. heard. Like yes. fake, news fake news was our thing. We knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> Fake news was like everything that we heard on the news are the commentating in the house would be just be like, nope, nah, that's not real. That's not true. That's not. And it was almost like a bant, like a back and forth banter that you just, it was a thing that you knew that the news was not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Like, so maybe we grew up just, oh, I mean, it, I don't know. For me as a journalist, that's great because I, I was always questioning everything. And I like, I, till now, I still believe that you have to like hear things directly from the source to believe them. Yeah. And I loved that when you were talking about Afghanistan, you were like, and I'm going to defer to Afghans on that. Like uh, your rundown was so on point and so great. And also like, yeah, that's not our story. Like that's the point. It's not our story to tell. Yeah. It's like, they, and we can point you to so many Afghans who are telling this story right now. Like they're the only people we need to be listening to. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's tricky with journalism 
because as a journalist, uh, this is like a whole other layered thing, but you don't want to like, like I grew, when I started out, I got, I started in 2009. I was 15. I, this first story I ever wrote about mm. was about an Iraq war veteran who was at the time 25 or 26. And so like closer to my age. And he had just gotten back from a relief uh, convoy to Gaza in Palestine. And he like did this event where he talked about what he saw. And he also talked about, he's a, he was a, he's a peace activist and talked about what he did during the war in Iraq and like how he never knew why he was there. And this is my first story that I ever reported. I wrote (laughs) for the newspaper. And I just remember thinking like, like this, I felt comfortable doing that story and I was there. And then after, once I got into, I think radio, I just made sure that I wasn't telling Muslim stories because it, like I so badly didn't want to be typecast. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. want people to be like, you can only tell the Muslim stories. Right. I did that for like, I was lucky enough where now when I'm working on a huge investigative project that is focused on Muslims, it's the first time I'm like, I've done a couple of stories, but it's the first time that I'm doing like an actual project this way. And it's because I'm finally ready. To, I like, I didn't realize that this whole time that actually the reason that I was avoiding it was because like I was avoiding me. Like I was avoiding myself. Oh. And now I'm in a place where I feel like I've sat with myself enough to be like, oh, like you're ready to tell this story. You're ready to go through this healing process. Because to me, every story that I, like even sold in America, obviously it was on the sex trade in the US and everything from sex trafficking to prostitution, like legalized sex work and prostitution. Um, But like that story came from me wanting to heal from sexual assault and like wanting to use this trauma to help other people. And so that's kind of what I'm doing again. So it's almost like it's like on my terms. It's not a white person who's telling me. Yes. Like a white non-Muslim person telling me like this is the story that you're going to have to do. So it's hard now though because there's so many citizen journalists too. And when it comes to something like Afghanistan, like I want to hear from Afghans about this. Yes. And at the same time, like how do we train people properly within newsrooms to trust that somebody who doesn't, who's not a part of a community can actually do the work to build trust with that community to tell the story the right way. Cause even like for me, sold in America took a really long time because it took me a long time to build trust with sex workers. Yes. I myself am not a sex worker and the sex work community rightfully so is very skeptical of the media because they've been so stigmatized that it was a lot, it was a lot of work and some fruitless efforts that had to go into it to say like, Hey, I'm here to be of service. And like, so to amplify your voice, like I'm not speaking for you. Um, and so now I'm seeing it through that lens. And I think that it really comes down to the journalist and the work that they've done to show that they prove that they've built trust with people. So that's what we, we hope to do. And that's why we tell stories the way that we do. I, I love that you said that. And, you know, I feel like this is kind of a therapy session, but a <laughs> cross-generational therapy session as you're talking, we're talking. And honestly, you're kind of giving me, my oldest just turned 18 this past week. That's and perfect. he's, I know my baby. And it's one of those things where he talks like you, right? He doesn't understand the story and the history because he has never known them before. Yeah. And that is just the fact that you're reiterating that to me as a mother 
is definitely something that I'm taking to heart because he does has he doesn't know a life before 9-11 um, has pretty much shaped his entire identity and, and fighting lack thereof. And it's funny because I was on the phone with Uzma when um, recently the Afghanistan, there was the bombing. He happened to be wearing his Salam peace <laughs> shirt and he literally wrote me and he was like, Oh, S H I T. Yes. He curses. And I'm okay with that. And he's like, I'm wearing the shirt and everyone is looking at me because of course they have their phones in the room and they're getting these alerts. He's like, what do I do? And I said, honey, Salam still means peace. And you are the person to embody that keep doing what you're doing because you're living your truth. And he definitely appreciated it later. But the fact that I have to have these conversations yep. with him in the middle of the day, because he's like, shoot, what do yeah, I it's do? Like an anxiety. It's like this it's an anxiety thing. You have to think about yes. what you're wearing or what you look like or what you say or what, and you have to, and it's like you grow up expected to like be a Talking, like talking head for yeah yes. yeah and I'm just like but I don't even know I remember I was, I just told Adam this story when I was in seventh grade my history teacher Mrs Richardson I remember um, like in our textbook we were learning about like world religions and the three biggest religions and Islam was one of them and I got so like taken aback I was like oh my gosh this is the first I was like is this something that we're gonna talk about and I don't know what inspiration something must have hit me like a ton of bricks because I go I'm Muslim like I just bleh, bleh, I threw it up like it was so wild because that was very unlike me and but I got so excited and I was like I'm such a participatory participatory butterfly in class like I always had my hand raised and I remember the teacher the first question she asked me not joking she just goes well, are you Sunni or are you Shiite? Yeah, and that's really I common. I literally <laughs> was so embarrassed because I didn't know what those meant. Mm. And I said, I told her I was Shiite. I was like, Shiite? <laughs> and I like my family is Sunni. Like I don't really think – like I don't do the sect thing, but mm-hmm. – um, I just, I had no idea what that was. And I went home and I asked my parents, I, I was like, are we Sunni or Shiite? And my mom was like, why are you asking that? And, um, I told her, and she like, I told her that I said I was Shiite and she like laughed because I had just never known. Like that was the first thing that my teacher asked me when she found out that she had a Muslim in her class. Like, I don't know why, but, um, who knows? Maybe it's because like in Christianity, the sex nominations matter. Thing. Yeah. I don't know, but you know, but then I, it's like, I didn't even, I, and after that, I still didn't know what it was. And I didn't know what those, the Sunni and Shia was until I was in high school. And that was because my family's best fam, like our best family friends are Shia. And, mm. and I learned about it because they pray a little bit differently. And I didn't know that. And that was it. And I was just like, oh, so everything that came after when I like started learning more about that, I was like, oh, that all comes down to politicization. Like people just talk about that out of politics, not because they're like, oh, we're Muslim. Let's talk about what, like, no, it's not, it's, I don't know. It's just no one's business. So it's like, even 
that even as a kid, it, it just didn't feel like, I don't know. It wasn't, it just wasn't welcoming to be able to talk about that. So there's like no room to be excited or even curious. And, and it's sad because I'm like, the, I'm literally the most curious person I know on the, on the face of the planet. And I, it took me so long to be curious about that part of myself. Hmm. And, but now I am. Mm-hmm. And now I'm so curious about it. And I'm so loving to that version of myself, like to the seventh grade Noor, to the, to the first grade Noor, to all of those versions of myself. I'm, I like, I love her so deeply and I, and she needed to go through all of those things and she needed to carry that shame so that we could do something about it today. And also I don't want anyone to ever have to go through that. Like I, like your son is why I'm doing this project. Because I think that we deserve a comprehensive body of work that can guide people through that identity crisis with like actual facts to be like, hey, by the way, that thing that you feel, this is why. That's really awesome. I wish we'd had that growing up, right, Zeba? Oh, she's on mute. You're on mute, babe. (laughs) Name it to tame it, right? Like that's kind of a philosophy. Like when you can give it the name, you can understand it. And honestly, it empowers you. So like everything that you've been doing through your EMDR and your therapy, Noor, it sounds to me like you're empowering your internal self to get you where you need to do so that you can now start telling the stories or shaping or giving them the voice to, so that their stories can be told. Because I feel like through storytelling, we can really learn and grow with one another, with one another and what we're all going through. And I love that you're doing that. Um, and, and now you're embracing your one of your identities and you're letting her shine. So I am so excited to see the first grade Noor and the seventh grade Noor because you're definitely giving us... Um, uh, something to look forward to with our kids too. We need more role models mm-hmm. so that they can embrace their multiple identities um, and and be very thankful that they've gone through the experiences that they have. And hopefully in another 20 years, we're not dealing with another Afghanistan. I'll tell you that right now. But, yeah. you know, as I mean, a mom- We all need tools to understand the role that- I think we all need tools to understand- the role that storytelling plays in lives because we, I don't even think like we are the first generation to grow up with the internet the way that we did. Yes. And even, even me at I'm 27 turning 28 and social media didn't start for me until high school, Mm -hmm. which to me like seemed really young, but now my 10 year old brother is better at using a computer than I am Yeah, and building worlds on Minecraft and stuff. (laughs) We have to teach people really young how to watch out for misinformation, how to not fall down that rabbit hole of YouTube videos, of television shows, of things, because that's how we're telling people their storylines because kid, like we look for ourselves in everything. Kids mm-hmm. look for themselves in everything. You know, the first time I always say the first time I ever felt true representation was when I watched Rami mm-hmm. and I literally, he had sent my husband and I the first season before it came out and we sat in one sitting and watched it. And Adam and I looked at each other and I literally said, is like, I feel like I'm being spied on is mm. what representation feels like. 
Yeah. And I had never known that heightened sense, sense of awareness. Of I'm like, this is what white people have been feeling this whole time. Like this is of course you're going to be I upset get it. Show because you're going to see, because even listen, I loved sex in the city and friends. And I also found ways to see myself, I guess, mm-hmm. in those shows I did. And in the excitement and I loved it, I got it. And also like, you're still always not them. Like you're yeah. still yeah. always with friends. It was like, it. we can never do that. So let's live vicariously through these six characters. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so it's, so it's, it's just different. I mean, everybody has their own version of, of those like, you know, friendship groups and stuff, but, um, it's just really cool to, to know that. And it's also really sad to know that like it was so limited, but I think now, like I don't need to only see a Muslim family on television to yeah. feel represented. I, I definitely always identified with shows that were BIPOC led because their nuances are very similar mm-hmm. to ours. Yeah. And there's just like more of a, I don't know. It's like a camaraderie. Like it just, feels closer to home. And also like, we just need more like within the diversity, we need more diversity. Yes. Within the diversity, that's, that's just really what it comes down to because we, we always need continuously evolving perspectives and that's just more fun. Like it's Mm -hmm. just exciting that way. And to me, I'm like, wow, it's taken us this long. Like, why are we so boring? Mm -hmm. I think it's because news came to us in certain, there was a certain format and there were certain, there was two people that used to give us the news, maybe three when we were growing up. I think Walter Cronkite was dead by the time we were Mm -hmm. old enough to understand news, but we had Peter Jennings and we had Ted Koppel. And those are the two dudes, the two white dudes who never pronounced Muslim correctly, by the way, we were always My dad actually took me to meet Ted Koppel at his hospital. That's a really good story. Oh. Oh, yeah. No, I was always mad at him. So I, I, you probably liked him. I always was really mad at him. I was I, like, you can't even say who I am correctly. <laughs> uh, I see. I didn't even know that. I just knew my dad introduced me. My dad was like, Ted Koppel's opening a wing in the hospital. You need to study this journalist. You need to come mm-hmm. and talk to him. And my dad's dream was always for me to be like a war correspondent. That's awesome. And now I think now that I think about it, it's also because like he knew I was going to be a journalist and that was the journalism that he saw. He yeah, saw exactly. That's all we knew. Which I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah. got it. And that's exactly it. This formula is changing. Mm-hmm. The stuff that I do, like that kind of storytelling came later with people like Lisa Ling, mm-hmm. like Bourdain. Yeah. yeah. Like, even Anderson Cooper and Christiana Ampour and Sold Up, like they still developed – I would say more Lisa, like Lisa Lang, when she started doing those segments for Oprah, mm-hmm. like that's that deep human interest uh, storytelling that like made you s- see people and not just issues. Um, but yeah, so it, it, that's really disappointing to hear about Ted Koppel. I also had Peter Jennings. Peter Jennings, how to to report was my speech coach and I had a horrible, horrible experience with her. But those are like the two people that I knew you had to, I mean, I knew that that was like the creme de la creme growing up. And you felt like you probably had to change or alter or emulate them in order to. Oh yeah. I I just literally wrote a whole chapter about that. Like I coming to my voice and realizing that I sounded fine and I just needed to like tune, like 
tune up my own voice, but there's this thing about the reporter's voice that you are just so we're like when I was a kid, I was so drawn to, and I thought like you had to talk this way, but I also thought it was always weird because I, I remember when I was young thinking, but that's now I tell my friends a story yeah. and I get more excited when I tell my friends a story. And so don't I want to be that ex- like, don't I want to tell it the same way? And I realized my, my rule that I, I may have gotten this from my mentor, Manny, who was like my biggest journalism mentor, but my rule was always to tell a story or report a story the way I would to my friend. I love that. And that probably makes you more relatable to other people. And it, it, it makes you more authentic and genuine when you're actually talking to mm-hmm. your friend, you're showing them your true identity versus this persona that you're trying yeah. to portray. It's a, well, yeah, it's a lot less exhausting. I mean, I'm very, yeah. the, you can be yourself. I've always felt like the wearing a mask or putting on a persona is yes. really, um, it, t- it takes out too much energy. And I already put so much energy in all of the things that I do that I can get very tired very quickly. And so I found that if I was trying to be something or trying to be like something that I would, I might as well just take a nap on the floor right there. So I just, I literally didn't have it in me to do that. And also it's, it goes very against my nature. Like I'm, if the way that you see me online or on a podcast or whatever, like that's how I am in person. And if I'm not like that in person and I'm extra quiet, it's probably because I was like that a lot and I need time. I need space. Yes. Cause you're probably, you're probably like me, you're an introvert on some level. So you need that time mm-hmm. to like decompress. Yeah, which I didn't even realize. Yeah. I, what, what I realized. Everyone assumes you're an extrovert, but you're actually an introvert, right? It's so interesting because, well, I, 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 maybe I'm like split down the middle because I definitely do recharge alone now, but I also just spent two weeks in a cabin alone and I've like learned to love to be alone. Mm -hmm. So that's new. Um, but I do chart, like I do recharge a lot with my loved ones, like my family members and my very close friends, but I have like a very intimate circle. Like I've always, Mm -hmm. um, I'm very friendly with so many people and the people that I talk to regularly is a handful of people. And when I somehow talking to strangers is a lot easier for me than talking to like people that I, maybe it's because I, I know that they have like a specific maybe agenda or I assume that, and I project that, or maybe it's just like strangers are not really asking me of anything and I really just enjoy people telling me stories. I really do. So I can always push through, like even at the, like the podcast movement event and talking to people afterwards and stuff like that always feels really great. And I feel really energized afterwards. And then later I just knock, like I fall asleep. I go to sleep. Oh yeah. I, I, that I, evening, remember like Zeba was, was out. The dinner? Yeah. I was like, dinner. I can't. She was like, yeah. I, I want to go I home. Go I want to go home. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. not, I need to leave. I can't talk to anybody. But you know, you're so used to talking and asking the questions. So we have a segment that we call rapid fire. And it was, was going to set a timer. And I'm going to ask you the questions now. So Ooh. are you ready? Are you ready I'm for this? So ready. Hold on. Is it I forget? Is it 30 seconds? Or is it one 60 seconds? One minute. One minute. Okay, hold on. And one minute rapid get, fire. Okay. We're going to get brown and dirty. So Are you quick. ready, Newer? That's going to be so good. Go okay. Never had a better guest. Okay. <laughs> ready, set, go. What is your most used emoji? 
Oh, it, it honestly, it might be the the one with the like cute um, black like the big black eyes that she's like making a little like like <laughs> the pouty face. Yeah. The I'm in love, I'm in love phase. What is the book that you're currently reading right now? I just finished uh, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X during my time in the cabin. And I also just finished this book called, literally just finished yesterday. Actually, the book, this, this book I finished this morning. It's called This Is How You Make a Movie. As a journalist, I want to know what your favorite word is. Well, the word that just came to my mind is delightful. And the reason for that is actually because of something that happened from that pod movement event. But I'm not going to share that story because I'm on a timer and also because I'm writing about it. But but currently the word delightful and delight has been having like deep feeling meaning for me. I love that. And this is your your last question since we have been talking about movies and all that mm-hmm. and representation. And we're going to wrap it uh, our representation series up. If someone were to play you in a movie, like the movie of your life, who would that be? That's oh a good one. I have never thought about that. I oh, have you never should. thought about that. You should um, you should think about it. Put it in your book. Mm-hmm. And then and make sure you tap. That's like me. manifesting but, well, like, it, right? Part of me is like, part of me is like, I don't want anyone to play me in a movie. I want to. Play I want to play myself. Oh, because you want to tell your own story. No, but exactly. I also like don't want to play myself, and I like I don't want to be in a scripted film about myself. Like I don't. I'm not an Issa Rae. I can't do that. Um, hold on, Adam. <laughs> when in doubt, ask the husband. Yeah, and if, she better be really cute. Tell him. Yeah, she better be really cute. If someone were to play me in a movie, an actor, Mila Kunis, yeah. in his- oh, totally, I could see that. <laughs> I like how that was I right on the top of his head. Multiple reasons, yeah. That was <laughs> was like, now go beat him up because she's cute. No, I mean, I think she's cute. I think yeah. that's, that's great. Like, thank you. Now we know that we have um, storytellers that are actually representative that our kids will be growing up seeing you on the screen, people that look like you, look like them on the screen, walk, talk like them. So it's going to be trust building. And we really appreciate all the great work that you're doing and the real news that you're telling, which is in these stories. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you so much for joining us today. We know you're really busy and probably still at the cabin. So please go relax and reset and we will try to do the same. Thank you, Uzma. Thank you, Zeba. I hope you guys have a great day. Assalamualaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma and Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamualaikum, everyone.